In May of this year, during Mental Health Awareness Month, I had the honor of having a live Q&A discussion with psychologist Dr. Lori Little of the Linder Center of Hope. Since 2008, the Linder Center of Hope has served as a lifeline to tens of thousands who face the struggle of mental illness or addiction. They offer a wide range of mental health services and treatments in an atmosphere that promotes long-term healing. And the Linder Center has an amazing auxiliary, and they raise money for special programs at the center. And this year's luncheon and auction where Dr. Little and I spoke before an audience helped to fund psychiatric services for patients needing financial assistance. Thank you to the High Hopes Auxiliary for asking me to facilitate this much-needed discussion. Health, wellness, career, relationships, and everything in between. We're removing the taboo from what really matters in midlife. I'm your host, Michelle Folan, and this is Asking for a Friend. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today's guest is Dr. Lori Little. She is the Chief Patient Experience Officer and a staff psychologist at the Linder Center of Hope. Her areas of expertise consist primarily of dialectic behavior therapy, and I'm going to let her explain that to you, and that's for patients with mood disorders, anxiety, PTSD, and binge eating disorder. Dr. Little also specializes in working with patients who are considering or have had bariatric surgery. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lori Little. Thank you so much. So happy to be here, Michelle. As you all know, as I said in the previous intro, Dr. Little and I got to sit down in front of a large audience and have this discussion, but it was worthy of having another sit down so that we could actually do this as the podcast for asking for a friend. So thank you for joining up with me again and doing this. Absolutely. My pleasure. We haven't talked a lot about mental health on the show. We talk about wellness, but I lump mental health into that wellness piece. And statistics show that one in four Americans suffer from some type of mental illness. I want to ask you, why is it that women in midlife seem to be particularly susceptible to emotional and mental issues? It's a really great question, and I think that there are a few reasons why women in general are more susceptible and women in midlife. We know that the rates of mental illness among men and women are actually the same, but what illnesses women are more likely to have differs from what mental illnesses men are more likely to have. Women in general are more vulnerable to certain factors which overall make us more vulnerable to having some mental health issues. Sadly, one in three women across the world are survivors of some kind of abuse, whether it's physical assault or sexual assault. We know that the experience of trauma greatly impacts our mental health and mental well-being. Unfortunately, women are in general are more vulnerable to experiencing abuse. We are more likely to also be caregivers 
That's just part of our role still. As women, we're often doing a lot more of the caretaking of our children and caretaking of others, and that's an extra burden that is placed on women, which absolutely can affect our well-being and our mental health. In general, this just makes women more vulnerable to experiencing mental health issues. We've talked on the show about the invisible woman syndrome, and you do hear about it in social media. Women, Mm -hmm. like you said, are often defined by raising their children, caring for their home. We have our aging, ill parents. When that role seems completed or we don't feel like we're as needed as we once were, there seems to be this struggle to define who we are or what's next Do you see this in your practice with your female patients? Yes, absolutely. And I think that that's in particular regarding your question about women at midlife is this is a really challenging time, as you said, that our roles are changing. If we had really strongly identified with our role as mom, it is often the case around midlife where our children are needing us in a different way. If they're going off to college, if they're starting their careers and leaving home, we're still always going to be needed. But in that day-to-day, the intensity of motherhood, it's very, very different. Mothering a young adult is so incredibly different than mothering a teenager or even a young child. Our roles are changing and shifting, and that is stressful as we know. Also, our career paths are changing around that time of our life. Many women might be re-entering the workforce, or if they've stayed in the workforce, then oftentimes midlife is an opportunity for us to really ask ourselves, is this what I want to be doing for the second half of my life? A lot of times of transition psychologically, not to even mention the biological changes that are also occurring for us at midlife. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you on so many of those pieces there. But then how do you work with these patients? Because there's a lot of layers there. Absolutely a lot of layers. My training is in a type of therapy you mentioned earlier called dialectical behavior therapy or DBT. This is a type of therapy that was actually created in the early 1990s, but now has really shown to be so effective with so many different populations. To describe it in a nutshell, the concept of what dialectical means is that two things that on the surface can sound opposite of each other can both be true. The primary dialectic in DBT is the concept of acceptance and change. We teach our patients the concept of being able to fully love and accept and embrace themselves exactly as they are, while also at the same time, we can learn new skills. We can learn skills to manage our very intense distress, distress tolerance skills. We can learn how to have healthy self-care to better identify what our emotions are. We can learn skills about how to be more effective interpersonally, being more assertive, learning when to set some boundaries, say no or ask for help. 
And then the core skill that we teach patients in DBT is called mindfulness. And that's really an opportunity to learn how to be more present, how to be more aware, more aware of our thoughts and our feelings and our body sensations, but really learning about a philosophy which helps us to be more in the now versus all the regrets and ruminations from the past or the fears and anxieties about the future. When you say instead of going back, is that counterintuitive for patients because they may want to go back and talk about all the stuff? Yes. <laughs> My goal is always to meet a patient where they are. And if this is something really important for someone to process what is their experiences, what has happened, why has it happened? A lot of people want to understand why am I the way that I am? Why do I think the way I think and feel the way I feel? And they really want to trace back their history and their childhood, which is totally okay and understandable. And I would never discourage a person from doing that. A lot of our time is spent trying to understand where this may have come from. And yet the and is that a heavy emphasis is placed on how will this help me now? How is this going to help me? Because there are a lot of things that we're never really going to fully understand about our past. And can we be okay with that? Can we learn in the now to love and accept ourselves with all of our quirks and all of our uniqueness and all of our strengths and limitations? Can we love all of ourselves and also continue to work towards change? The patient's not broken and they don't need to be fixed. Correct. But do they need to be part of the solution? So what I mean by that, how do you get them to accept their role in the process if they're feeling super hopeless or if they're just not self-aware at all? Really good question. And a lot of patients that I see sometimes will come in feeling very hopeless and often looking for something outside of them to solve the problem. What I will say, when a person is coming in feeling very hopeless, that's a strong indicator of a severe depression that's going on. And so the first thing I would want to do is have the person meet with a psychiatrist or practitioner to really evaluate whether or not medications is warranted. Depression is an illness, and we want to treat it and think of it just like any other medical condition. A person might benefit from some medications to really help them with the severity of their depression, which will then help them utilize therapy a little bit more. When you're hopeless and you don't see any way out, it's really hard to even imagine that therapy is going to be useful for you. I hear that a lot. Well, I'm not sure what you're going to be able to do. We want to do that medication biological piece first. Outside of that, then a lot of the principles in DBT in which the way that I work is really helping patients understand the difference between fault and responsibility, meaning that it is not our fault that we are the way that we are, we feel the way that we feel. It's not our fault, and yet it is also only our responsibility to be able to make our lives different. 
many times people will come to me and they're stuck in this place of feeling very angry about their past, angry of the things that have happened to them. And they have every right to feel very angry because it wasn't their fault. And there's a bit of a grieving process that we go through of coming to accept our realities, accept what has happened to us, and also recognize that I'm not at fault for the things that happened to me, but nobody's going to rescue me. Nobody's going to fix this for me but me. Really emphasizing the sense of personal responsibility for making the lives that we want to make. As you're working with these patients, what types of behaviors manifest? What are you seeing in these patients typically? Really at its core, people will find lots of different ways to manage suffering. I see patients that use substances, might drink too much alcohol, smoke, or use a lot of marijuana. I see patients that shop excessively, buy, try to accumulate things because they imagine that will make them feel better. I see patients that will sometimes even hurt themselves. Anger can be really a difficult emotion for women to experience and express in a healthy manner. Sometimes I'll see women that lose their temper, yell at their spouses or their kids, and then feel incredibly guilty about that afterward. The behaviors are pretty wide-ranging. At its core, though, people are doing the best that they can and imagining that something outside of them is going to make them feel better. big lesson or theme in DBT is that peace and happiness comes from within. There's no object you can buy, no substance that's going to give you eternal peace. Learning how to be mindful and present at its core is how we actually experience peace and happiness in our lives. Well, you and I had joked about this when we were together on stage. I made the comment, we all have Amazon stopping at our houses multiple times per week. But when you say compulsive shopping or other compulsive behaviors, how do you define what is compulsive? Great question. With any kind of compulsive behavior, if a person feels like they absolutely have to or they really can't stop themselves, if a person was shopping so much and they felt like it was out of control, there's this element of feeling out of control with the behavior, but also if you were shopping so much and it was having a lot of negative consequences, if you're racking up bills, if you're taking rent or food money in order to manage this compulsive shopping, that's problematic. We really want to look at what are the negative consequences associated with the behavior, if there are lots of financial, emotional, or even social negative consequences. If people are complaining to you that this is a problem, then that's a big red flag. We look at both the negative consequences and we also look at the frequency of it. If this is a behavior that you're engaging in several times a week or on a daily basis, then we start to worry because it's happening so frequently. It's very normal for all of us to shop or have a bad day and buy something to perk us up or cheer us up from our bad day. That is normal. If that's happening on a regular or consistent basis 
or you really don't know how else to take care of yourself. If shopping becomes the only way that you know how to make yourself feel better, then that's when we start seeing this as problematic. Okay, you would lump probably eating a whole package of Oreos or drinking a whole bottle of wine by yourself in that same category. (laughs) In a way, yes. Again, it's something that we all might do rarely, (laughs) but absolutely, if this is happening on a consistent basis, I would want to have that person talk to someone about it. What about excessive plastic surgery or dermatologic procedures? Are those in the same category of patients you see? I think in those circumstances, again, what I really try to emphasize with patients is trying to understand, tell me your why, what are your goals, what are you hoping to get out of this procedure? When people are saying things like, I feel good about myself, I just want a little tweak, I want a little smoothing, I just want to feel a little bit better about my appearance. To me, that's a very normal, very healthy approach that most women take towards plastic surgery, dermatological, that's a big word, (laughs) procedures. But when I start to hear things like, I feel horrible about myself, I have to change this part of my body, this about me is so awful, it's intolerable, and I need it to be changed. We're kind of talking about want versus need. We're talking about this core feeling of not feeling good enough. When people imagine, oh, after I have this plastic surgery, I'm going to be so happy. My life is going to be so much better. These are red flags because there's nothing that we can do to the outside of ourselves to really make us feel happy sustainably or for a long period of time. It's really unrealistic expectations. And I think, unfortunately, more and more men as well are utilizing plastic surgery and other procedures and some people can get addicted to this they get that sort of temporary pleasure joy and keep doing it keep doing it keep doing it in order to sustain those feelings those positive feelings but also because underneath they really feel like something's flawed and broken that they need to fix i think this is really good conversation i love this Can you address some of the recent data around the adverse side effects of alcohol consumption? Really, how much is too much? And we do talk about alcohol on the show quite often, but I really want to get your opinion from a psychologic perspective. There's a lot of controversy about the use of alcohol and what is appropriate, what is healthy, what amount is reasonable. I think that... The CDC says that women, in particular, should not exceed one drink a day and actually even recommends twice a week to two to four drinks per week. When we start going beyond that amount is when we start developing the risk for more problems. When I am talking to women about their alcohol use, what I'm really asking again is kind of frequency. How often are you drinking? How much are you drinking? And I'm also wanting to find out the negative impact. 
are there any negative repercussions associated with your drinking, either in the short run or the long run? Is it affecting your energy? Is it affecting your mood? Are you more likely to do or say something when you've had alcohol that could be harmful or goes against your moral values? I think that it's a big question to explore. It's not black or white. We can't just say, okay, you're drinking this level and therefore that is too much. What we're really trying to look at is the big picture and understand what's occurring and what are the consequences associated with the drinking. And I see a lot of women that are using alcohol, maybe wine in the evening or the spritzers, and they are just not as aware as they could be about the impact that this is really having on their mood and energy and other areas of their lives. Learning other healthier ways to manage stress or burnout or whatever it is that the person is experiencing, what else can we learn that's actually going to be more effective and have a much more positive experience for you? At what point, Lori, would you recommend someone for inpatient treatment for substance abuse or alcohol? For inpatient treatment, we're really going to be asking about signs of withdrawal. So if a person is drinking so consistently on a daily basis, and they also feel like they need alcohol all the time, so that if they don't have alcohol, they start to notice different physiological symptoms that's when we're really talking about inpatient treatment because we want that person to safely withdraw from alcohol. There are certain drugs, alcohol being one of them, that if a person withdraws without medical intervention, they're at higher risk for having a seizure or having some medical complication associated with that. We want to make sure that someone is being supervised medically, and there are also some medicines that can help it be a less painful process than it needs to be. Well, and they'd also get that support, psychological support that they can help yes. navigate that, because I know that just a lot of physical and mental things that could go on with that. That's really interesting. If someone is doing inpatient for withdrawal, that depending on what the substance is, it might take a couple of days for that initial withdrawal symptoms to dissipate. Mm -hmm. And we're also then providing resources and education and really talking about, okay, now how are you going to maintain this? If sobriety is your ultimate goal, what's the level of treatment that you may need? And we actually have different levels of treatment so that a person, in inpatient is what we really think of as the most intensive level of care for someone. But we also have step-down treatment, which is called PHP or partial hospitalization program. In a PHP, a person is going to get treatment Monday through Thursday, Monday through Friday from 9 to 3. And so it's really a big chunk of their day. That's a very intense treatment. And oftentimes when people are coming out of inpatient, they might step down to a partial hospitalization program. Okay. We also have what's called an IOP or an intensive outpatient program, and those are usually a couple of hours, a couple of times a week, and then the lowest level of care is outpatient therapy, and that's where you would see your provider for 
45 minutes once or twice a week or even less than that depending on what your needs are. Can you differentiate for the listeners anxiety and depression from bipolar and then personality disorder? I know that's a big hefty question (laughs) but I think there's a lot of confusion out there as to what is what. It makes sense. There is a lot of confusion. I'll talk in very generalities. The difference between anxiety and depression, even though they very often go hand in hand, so it makes sense why someone might not understand the difference, because oftentimes when we have chronic anxiety that isn't treated, we will become depressed about having this anxiety and vice versa. If we have depression for a long time that isn't being treated, we can become anxious that our depression will never get better. So anxiety is characterized by thoughts that are worrying, what if thoughts, catastrophic thoughts. Our body, when we're feeling anxious, we feel our heart racing, we are breaking out into a sweat, we can even have panic attacks where we feel like we're having a heart attack or we can't breathe. Anxiety is really characterized by a lot of tension in the body and a lot of worry, ruminative thoughts. Depression is really more when I feel sad, I feel down, blue, hopeless. Oftentimes with depression by itself, we can have low energy. We feel fatigue. We don't have an interest or enjoyment in things anymore. We might not even have an appetite, so we might lose weight, or we might be using food to cope so that that leads to weight gain. But again, depression and anxiety can co-occur, so sometimes it's difficult to tease out. A bipolar disorder or a mood disorder is where we have episodes of depression, but then we also have these other episodes that are called manic episodes or hypomanic episodes. And in those episodes, people can actually really enjoy them because your mood is really elevated, you're really happy, you feel on top of the world, but it's not your regular normal happy, it's uh, over the top. I feel like I can do anything, I can accomplish anything. Oftentimes people will really make impulsive or poor decisions because I feel like I can do anything. I'm going to move to California and become that actress that I know I've always been meant to be and spontaneously drop all of their responsibilities. People are typically in a manic episode are not sleeping or getting very, very little sleep and yet still engaging in lots of activities and behaviors. Their thoughts are going fast. They're talking fast. And these episodes can last for days, weeks, or even months at a time. And this is not good for the brain, and it's not good for one's life to be in a manic episode. We have these manic episodes interspersed with depressive episodes, and that's what differentiates a bipolar, meaning two, disorder from a regular depression. Got it. Then what is a personality disorder? That one's a little bit harder to identify and a little bit harder to explain, but I'll do my best. We have different types of personality disorders, and usually the behaviors that we're seeing, we've seen in childhood or adolescence. It's something that is lifelong. It affects all aspects of the person's life. It affects 
how they interact with other people. It affects their mood. It affects their job. When I was talking about DBT earlier, dialectical behavior therapy, this was a treatment that was originally created for people with a personality disorder called borderline personality disorder. So that's an example of a personality disorder. And in BPD, it's where individuals have very intense mood fluctuations. So instead of the bipolar where we might see weeks at a time of a certain mood, in BPD, we're going to see mood fluctuations rapidly. You know, one hour a person can feel really happy and on top of the world, and then the next hour they can feel despondent. And then 30 minutes later they might feel enraged and angry. So there's a lot of mood lability and mood changes, a lot of behavioral dysregulation. So oftentimes people with BPD are destructive to themselves. They chronically have suicidal thoughts and they can lose their temper, get angry and enraged at other people. So they have difficulties obviously with their social relationships. This is gonna affect them occupationally. This is affecting their mood. So it's affecting all of these areas of your life that's what we would say is a personality disorder. It affects so many domains and it's long-standing. And typically personality disorders are more resistant to treatment. So they take longer for people to make changes in their behavior. Does obsessive compulsive disorder fit in there? No, OCD is not a personality disorder. Okay. It's a different type of mental illness, but it's not considered a personality disorder. I won't complicate guests by going into, we actually have an OCPD, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, but that's something <laughs> different than OCD. Okay. There's a lot of terms, a lot of letters, a lot of stuff, but OCD is not considered a personality disorder. And it actually is a condition that we have a lot of ways that we know we can treat it. So people often avoid treatment when they have OCD, one, because they don't even really fully know they have it, and two, it's so overwhelming that they often avoid treatment. It's actually a form of anxiety. It falls within the anxiety disorders category. There are people who are specialty trained in treating OCD, and it's actually a very treatable condition. This is really interesting. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I'd love to read about this stuff. Thanks for helping me understand. I want to talk a little bit about eating disorders in midlife women. Is it binging and purging, anorexia, like we would see in teenage girls, say? And then how would treatment be different or the same as you would mm -hmm. someone much younger? Women in midlife are less likely to have anorexia. There are different types of eating disorders, and so the main ones that most people are familiar with are anorexia, where individuals are restricting their intake so much that they become underweight and malnourished. And this is often something, unfortunately, that we're seeing more of with young folk and that the age of beginning to diet just gets earlier and earlier, you know, 11 year olds, 10, 9, 8 year olds, even making comments and having thoughts about their own body. So it's really heartbreaking. 
However, as women get older, the rates of anorexia are a little bit lower. What is a little bit higher are rates of binge eating disorder or bulimia. Bulimia or bulimia nervosa is a condition in which we have both the behaviors associated with anorexia, meaning restricting, withholding food, but then we have binge episodes. So this compensatory idea that I'm going to try to withhold food or even get rid of food by purging or excessive exercise. So there's this process of having too little food and then too much food with binge eating. Binge eating disorder is where a person is having recurring episodes of binge eating, but they're not doing any sort of compensatory behavior. So they're not doing excessive exercise, they're not purging, they're not restricting. It's really just the binge episodes which characterize BED. Women in their midlives, I see a lot of women that are struggling with binge eating disorder, having a tremendous amount of shame and guilt and embarrassment about that. Do you ever recommend them for inpatient? Typically, patients who have binge eating disorder don't need inpatient treatment. People with anorexia or bulimia will at times absolutely need inpatient care. There's a different level of care that I neglected to mention earlier called residential treatment. And residential treatment is where individuals will stay. They'll go to a facility and then stay for a certain period of time, a week, a month, several months, depending on what the condition is. There's emphasis on the treatment, the helping the patient understand and get treatment for their illness. Sadly, today, the difference between residential and inpatient, I get this question a lot, is that inpatient today is very brief. It's very focused on managing your symptoms and keeping the person safe enough for discharge. So inpatient treatment is usually, it can be just two, three, four days because we're really just focusing on keeping that person safe. Whereas residential treatment is really focused on recovery and the treatment, the necessary intensive treatment that a person may need. Do genetics play a role in anxiety and depression? Absolutely. We know that when our parents have some kind of mental illness, that makes us predisposed to having something as well. If our parents had depression or anxiety, we know that we are more vulnerable to experiencing depression, anxiety, or some kind of mental illness as well. There's researchers that are learning every day different genes. What are those actual connections? That's outside of my wheelhouse. But yes, absolutely. We know a family history of mental illness as well as a family history of addiction makes us more likely to have mental illness or addiction ourselves. And we know that any mental challenges can affect the quality of life of not just the patient, but their families and friends as well. How can we better minimize the stigma so that people feel more free to seek help? I'm really glad you asked that question. It's something that I'm really passionate about is reducing the stigma of mental illness and helping people to feel more comfortable and safe talking about it. I think there are a few things that we can do. What I, as a provider, do 
is I'm very open with my own struggles with depression and anxiety. I'm very open with others that I take medication for depression and anxiety and have for many years. I try to normalize for my patients that this is something that so many of us have experienced and try to really reduce that shame where I can talk very openly and comfortably about this with people. If I'm able to do that, then I want to be a role model to others. I think it's really important that we open up the conversation. As we know right now in 2023, so many of our young people are struggling and really having increased levels of depression and anxiety and suicidal thinking and fortunately, I do think our younger folks are a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more versed in talking about mental illness and talking about getting treatment for mental health conditions. I do think that things are getting better, but there are a lot of us that still grew up in certain cultures or in a time in which mental illness was something to be ashamed of or not discussed. So we're really trying to reverse that and talk openly and honestly and really help people understand that mental illness is no different than a physical illness. And pointing out that discrepancy, why is it that we don't have any shame talking about, say, having diabetes and needing to take diabetes medication forever, but somehow there's a difference when it comes to mental health and really trying to educate people that it is no different. That's no different than talking about our physical health, our spiritual health, thinking of health as a really holistic approach and our mental health is just one aspect of that big picture. And I think this is actually the best way to wrap this conversation up. I believe that we need to care for our whole self and we don't have to suck it up. There's help out there. There's help available to people. There isn't any shame whatsoever and looking for help or asking for help. And I also really just want to add to your listeners that you don't have to be at your wit's end. Don't let it get to the point where you feel hopeless or you feel so overwhelmed. You can utilize mental health services like therapy for even just the regular normal phases of life that we all go through. If you're having empty nest and you're feeling sad and really struggling with what to do with yourself, therapy is a great time to be able to explore some of those questions about yourself and your identity and your role. Don't let it get to the point where you feel hopeless. Really nurture yourself and do some prevention as well. Wonderful. Lori Little, it was an absolute pleasure having you today. Thank you so much, Michelle. It was a joy. Thank you. If you or someone you know is in emotional distress or in a suicidal crisis, please dial 988 for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Follow Asking for a Friend on social media outlets and provide a review and share this show wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and sharing help us grow.